Good Wednesday morning, and today Dr. John is going to be talking about hope for the hopeless. Hope is in short supply at the moment, isn't it? Um, I was struck this week reading, rereading Leslie Newbegin's The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, uh, where he gives a brief account of learning Tamil when he was in India. Um, he was there for about 40 years and very interested in the language and uh, how you communicate with an entirely different culture. And uh, he was learning Tamil and he suddenly realized, or slowly actually, slowly began to realize there was no word for hope in Tamil. didn't exist. And when he asked his Hindu language teacher why, the response was rational. He said, well, we believe that what's going to happen is going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. So hope is a word without meaning. You can stop and think about that for a while. Isn't that where most of us are now? We have given up on the basis for real hope and then we are surprised that we are hopeless. Uh, youngsters are experiencing this without realizing how it's come about. But they are certainly, the majority of them, without any real hope for the future. And when that happens, they start buying into things like catastrophe theories that the, the culture's going to overheat and die or whatever. It's going to go on that way. Um, they're not married. They're not even having sex at the same rate, many of them. They're not bothering to get a driving license. They're sitting in their rooms looking at Instagram. Now, this is not just confined to the West. Uh, probably Japan and uh, South Korea are even worse. Not good news. Hope is not a virtue except in the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and charity. Uh, the three virtues that lie at the basis of what we say we believe. So I want to talk about why we're not so hopeful either. Because if there is going to be a return to a better society, it has to stop with the Christian church. Nobody else has the means. And we are not living up to the story we say we believe. So hence, we are the problem. As Jesus said, we are supposed to be the salt of the earth. Uh, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because it needs to really soak into our souls. When Jesus said that, the people who heard it on that hillside 2,000 years or so ago understood it much more deeply than we do, because he wasn't talking about salt that you have on the table. He was talking about rock salt. And it was so valuable that you could be paid in salt. The Latin word for salt is salaire, which gives us our word salary. That's how important it was. Now, what was it used for? It, in those days, it was used to preserve meat and fish for the winter. So as the season for salting down the, the salt and fish came round, off to the market, the housewife would go and buy a sack of salt. Now, a good businessman would make sure that the top layer of that sack was very salty. That's not to say the rest was, because only a, a small percentage of rock salt is 
salt in most deposits. There are some better ones, but most of them are not that good. So there's lots of silicates and aluminates and all sorts of things in there uh, with some salt, which is a critical bit for what a housewife wishes to achieve. So she would trot off with her salt and start layering meat and fish, whatever it was she was doing, with a layer of salt in between and so on. And at the beginning, she'd be tasting the salt and she'd be using the top of the sack so it tasted salt. We get tired of tasting salt. She'd not taste it so much. And then a few weeks later or less, a nasty smell would issue from her salted fish or salted meat. Did she blame the salt or the meat and fish? Of course, she blamed the salt. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you are truly my disciples, you are going to be salt in the world, preserving what is good and destroying what is evil. Uh, we're not doing that. Our influence has waned from what it used to be. Yet all the great institutions of healthcare and education are Christian in origin in the Western world. You wouldn't know that today. He makes one other statement that is really frightening for Christians. He says, if you have ceased to be a salty Christian, you're good for nothing. You will be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. They won't have any time for you if you're not salty. They'll just walk over you. Does that sound like what's happening to the church at the moment? As the church caves at every point, uh, not having the guts to stand up and say, no, we're not going that way. And the story of the church was not going that way. Uh, we need to get back to that if we can. Um, only by the grace of God. Now, in Newbegin's discussion of this, uh, he starts with saying something that Lewis said in one sentence. If nothing can be assumed, nothing can be proved. That ought to be almost a mantra with us uh, so that we recognize we, our assumption is that God has spoken into our world and has spoken to us. But the rest of the world going on as it does is nevertheless believing things whether it wants to or not, and whether it uh, actually pays attention to them, which it, by and large it doesn't. But they have to make assumptions. We assume that our experience of God and the history that we inhabit are real and true. Anybody doing science must believe in the rationality of the world around us, that it can be understood by reason. Um, and science has proved that it can. But we now reach the stage, and we saw it in COVID all the while, the science has said, now, the science had not said what, was need, what we needed to know. It only told us part of it. Only the bit that the epidemiologists understood, the numbers and what they thought was going to happen. They didn't put it inside the context of their story and the human story, because humans have a great need for understanding some questions that science can't understand. Where did I come from? Evolution doesn't answer that. It has to assume something to start with. Uh, the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God. Uh, it doesn't look so stupid now to think that the material came from the immaterial, that a mind 
came before matter. And certainly there are lots of scientists who would say it's certainly as good an idea as any of the others that are around, even from a scientific point of view. It's, of course, a much better idea in terms of outcome, if that's what you're interested in too. So that belief underlies whatever you do. If you believe that there is no future, you will live as though there is no future. If you believe that sex is only a transient feeling, you will behave as though it's only a transient feeling. Now, we inhabit a different story. Our plausibility structure, which is what Newbean calls it, taking the, uh, the word from a Christian sociologist, uh, but that doesn't really matter where it comes from. But we have a story that makes sense of our world. And what, what are the tests? Well, the tests are the usual ones. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Can I handle suffering? Can I handle death? Uh, can I provide a reasonable philosophy of justice? Do I have a basis for knowledge? Therefore, do I have a basis for what I ought to call good or what I ought to call evil? Uh, can I have ethics in my world? Uh, those are the questions, and most of those cannot be answered by science without sneaking in somewhere a starting point that wasn't there to begin with. Uh, I constantly return to this. Uh, the reason I'm returning to it at the moment is not only New Begin, but the fact that uh, we had our annual conference for physicians uh, couple of weeks ago. And as usual, the most striking thing about it was the fellowship that was there, especially for American physicians who have to live under the disgraceful HIPAA rules brought in by uh, Hillary, uh, which make it uh, an offence to discuss a case without, with people, your colleagues, without the permission of the patient. That means you can't have conversations in the cafeteria or in the elevator. Now, that's absolutely stupid. If you've got a patient's problem on your mind and then you meet someone in the corridor, he might have an idea. You talk about it. I don't know how many cases have been solved that way, but I know that it's huge numbers and sometimes vitally important uh, for me. All the key moves in my career came from so-called casual conversations, which Hillary wants to regulate or wanted to regulate. The, the trouble with the liberal elite and the left in general is they want to control your thoughts. And if they do that, they will destroy development and change. And that's clearly the case already. We're not having huge step forwards on the, the level of uh, uh, Newton or Einstein or whatever. Uh, we're doing basically technological science. Uh, we've got techniques. We know what they're capable of. Let's go look for this using these techniques. Uh, that's good. It's solid. It's real. But it will be done and it will run out. Whereas when a new idea comes along, everybody is fired up if they're in that area. And it changes. Uh, the whole area comes to life. Um, the guy wrote, wrote the book, didn't understand everything he was writing about, I think, but uh, the famous book where the idea of paradigm change came from, uh, uh, 
needs to be thought of more carefully. He didn't believe in truth. Kuhn, um, who gave us the idea of uh, paradigm shifts, he was right, but he needed more context to understand how those changes came about. Our story is quite different. And it ties in with something else that's been waking me up at night. Um, I wake up at night almost, well, every night, really. Uh, normally, my response is to start reciting the Sermon on the Mount to myself, and in uh, less than a dozen verses, I'm asleep. Uh, but over the last little while, a few weeks, when John 15 has been on my mind, uh, the story of the vine, and... What Jesus is saying there is really, uh, when you stop and meditate on it, a bit overwhelming. He says we are to live in him as he lives in us, first of all. That's an interesting concept. Um, he also says that unless we do that, we cannot make any progress. In fact, he very bluntly says, without me, you can do nothing. Now, what we as humans try to do all the while is codify what God has said so that we can take charge of it again. Uh, we do it all the while, and then the Holy Spirit comes along and destroys our little sandcastle with the tide of divine truths. We don't live that dependence. I don't, and I recognize that that has to change. I'm also watching my brother-in-law uh, cope with his death as he uh, is approaching it because of sy systemic uh, cancer. Now, he's being very courageous, but it's also bringing him to a much more thoughtful uh, interaction with his faith. He always believed the story was true, but now it's going a little bit further. Deaths and suffering and problems do that for us. They're there to prod us into realizing a way of looking at the world is not sufficient and to start examining what is out there that we could be using, and there's a lot. So Newbegin's first point is that everybody has a plausibility structure, a way of looking at the world. And the way the epidemiologists looked at the world with numbers failed to see that they were dealing with human beings for whom death was a key and important issue, and how you die affects not only you, but all those you say you love. And forcing people to die by waving to one another, the dying person to wave to the person they'd slept next to for 60 years through a glass window, was a failure of an order that only an epidemiologist could achieve. Uh, it's as though they hadn't seen a person in the last 50 years, that they would even conceive of that as a possibility. The first thing they should have said, okay, there's going to be some excess mortality. How are we going to handle this? But instead, they believed they could stop it. Of course, they couldn't. And quite a few virologists told them, you won't stop a coronavirus. It will spread. Uh, and they didn't stop it, of course. Uh, they like to pretend that what happened was due to them. No, I think it was mainly natural history. It would have happened whichever way around. Uh, you did it. That is shown by the, the Swedish example who didn't obey the rules and they have the same death rate as everybody else at the end. Um, but 
they do not have the lockdown consequences that we have. Children who didn't see lips moving in school for two years, is it surprising that their language skills are way behind? Uh, I mean, you can go on here. Once you start having the thoughts, you see how wrong the whole thing was because it failed to include all the things that human beings are and have, uh, which our story would have included. Jesus didn't say to the leper, keep away from me. He, he touched him and healed him. And that was understood so that throughout history, before we understood leprosy, Christians started caring for lepers. Uh, some of them died because they didn't understand that embracing a leper is dangerous. Uh, close physical contact is the way that uh, the disease can be transmitted. But it doesn't stop you caring for them, as you understand. And when plague came along, Christians who understood that their eternal destiny was more important than their temporal destiny and didn't run away. They cared for people at the cost of their own lives. And they thought it, the bargain was well worth it. We don't have the evidence in the scientific sense, but in a sense we know it. Every time we take a risk of that order because of our faith, we are renewed in the process. It's always like that. And that's what Christ promises. If you live my life in the church, in me, you will be aware of my presence and it will grow. Uh, people coming in recognize it. What we recognize every year for a week in June is that what we have in common in belief makes it possible for us to have a much better relationship and a deeper one than we can have in the, uh, what's the word I want, the over-bureaucratized practice of medicine. I've been saying for well over 20 or 30 years that we need to divide medicine because it's a moral activity. We help patients decide what they ought to do. So it follows logically that if there's a radically different view of what that ought comes from, you're going to have a different practice of medicine. So Christian medicine actually has something to say to people who are hopeless because we're not. Uh, scientific medicine has nothing to say about that except to try and deal with it chemically. Uh, they, they steal some of our ideas uh, without the power of them. So we need our narrative uh, and we need to tell it as honestly and as straightforwardly as we can. But it includes miracles. They do happen still. We shouldn't be ashamed of them. We should verify them. But they happen. They've happened in our family. I hope they've happened in yours in some way or another. Uh, if the Lord had not been present, we should have perished, says the Psalms. And it is true. Uh, so the narrative we have to tell uh, we keep bending to their rules instead of confronting their rules. Our narrative says, in the beginning, God, and God is present to us. He came into our lives. He comes into other people's lives, and we can see the difference. When the church does that properly, then the community of the church will grow. The, the strength of the narrative will have the effects you expect. I, as I look back now, am so grateful 
for the fact that I grew up uh, where I was not exposed to all the things that children have to deal with today. There were no screens. We never had a television. We never had a car. I didn't know we were poor because we weren't poor. I was loved and I was being taught to live inside a story that works. My parents kneeled down every night before I went to bed and we prayed together. Uh, that was showing me what I took for granted, my tacit world, to use uh, a phrase Newbegin is very fond of, the things that we know without knowing how we know. They're real. When you fall in love, you don't know how it's happened, but you can't deny that it has. Tacit knowledge is everywhere. Conversion is the best example. I can't tell anyone how to become a Christian in a mechanical sense. I can tell them that if you honestly search for moral and eternal truth, you will find it. It could take a long while. My good friend John Robson took 20 years to get there. Um, I love watching that process. Our job is merely to bear witness. We can't do anything. It's silly to allow the world to say you've got to have a set of protocols. No, it doesn't work that way. And we should be proud of that fact. It is God entering into our lives, and we know it. We can't deny it. It happens to the smartest. It happens to the simplest. To take two examples, uh, um, my favorite uh, example from the book Professors Who Believe uh, is a man who was a geophysicist and a member of the National Academy of Sciences, which uh, used to mean pretty well that he had to be an atheist to get in. But he couldn't get his work done in the way that he was doing it before. The only time he could normally work was Sunday morning because the graduate students weren't there. Sunday mornings, he had the Augustine phenomenon. His heart was restless. He couldn't settle down and concentrate. So he went to Princeton Chapel. And one morning, a woman preaching said, you guys in this congregation trust only a dozen people in the world when it comes to your work. But when it comes to the biblical story, Christianity, your knowledge is roughly a kindergarten level. And he said, oh my goodness, she's right. And he says, I started reading the Bible. He doesn't tell you anymore because he doesn't know how it happened yet. He simply knows that his life was turned around. And the restless heart became one at peace and he went on with his work, but now it's an entirely different man. That's what conversion does. Ah. Uh, Here's an example of that kind of phenomenon at the top end of the intellectual spectrum. But at the other end, the little guy who was responsible for um, name block again, uh, A Window on Heaven, Diane Comp. Uh, if you haven't read her little book, A Window on Heaven, get it. It's one that you buy whenever you see it secondhand to give away to other people. But she was a professor of pediatric oncology. Faith had been discarded by university. She was brought back by a little guy with Down syndrome. She said, I needed to be humble. He was dying of leukemia, and he knew that Auntie Diane, which is what he called her, was upset that he was dying. And one night he said to his mum as she was tucking him up, 
They told him he got, they couldn't explain leukemia to a kid with Down syndrome. They have more leukemia than normal kids. But they told him, look, you're going to heaven before we do. So you will be with Jesus quite, quite soon. Uh, and we will join you later. You're going to get there first. Do you think he was bothered by that uh, possibility living in a Christian home? Of course he wasn't. But they can be wise. And he said to his mum one night, as he was being tucked up, I want you to tell Auntie Diane she's not to be upset. Tell her I'm going to be with Jesus and tell her I want her to come too. When that message was relayed, Diane was brought into the kingdom, humbled by a kid with Down syndrome. That's our narrative. And we could go on telling it indefinitely, because it is indefinite. It will take all eternity to understand it properly. But at the moment, the church is not in that state. Uh, there are various people writing about this problem. Um, if you want to follow it up, you only have to go to first things and pick up a few issues and read of it. But the good part of it is that a lot of people are beginning to say, we've got to repent, basically. Now, the evangelical church has the problem of not putting repentance into worship. Well, in my view, that's a good way of not getting into the presence of Christ, because as Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, I used to say early, but it's not. It's early in the broadcast talks, of which I have copies which preceded Mere Christianity, but it's about the fifth chapter in Mere Christianity where he says, repentance is not something that God voices upon us, something that he demands that he could forego if he wishes. No, repentance is what happens when you meet with God. Even as a Christian, the first thing that happens is that you need mercy. And the moment you repent, you receive that mercy. Then you can enter into the presence of God. So I would really like to see our evangelical churches uh, return to the practice of repentance, being careful not to allow it to become just a form of words, because at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who say uh, a prayer of repentance every Sunday in church, and it becomes totally meaningless. It makes no difference to their lives. You can fall into either mistake, uh, we, we, it's, the present, it's the way into the presence of God um, because if we went into the presence of God in our sinful state, we wouldn't be destroyed. Uh, he keeps his distance from us. But if we want a close encounter with God, if we want to know him, then we've got to dwell in him and it will involve repentance. Without, without it, you can assume that you're making no progress. So we do need to repent of the hypocrisy in the church. We're not worthy of our forebears. We need an 18th century revival again. It was astonishing that Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, upset the whole of the east coast of the US and was also present in England with Wesleyan Whitfield. Um, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a, a charismatic man, uh, but that sermon printed changed America. And its effects are still present. Uh, I didn't 
learn until this week, listening to Tom Sowell, that uh, when the Civil War ended, some Puritans went down south uh, to educate the black children. And most of the good black leaders can trace the development back to that Puritan missionary effort. I, I, I want to learn more about that. If anybody knows where to find it, please write and tell me. Um, Tom Sowell won't be watching me, and uh, I wouldn't ever get anywhere near him, but maybe some of you will be able to ask him uh, where that story can be found. Uh, he certainly knows it. So that's America. America, a country with the soul of a church, but it's lost its soul to a large degree. It still has the church as a as mu much more of a community center than it is in many parts of the world, but it's lost uh, the power of the gospel. Um, the one thing that reduces me to tears, uh, tragedy doesn't, I've seen too much, I've learned to live with it. But the grace of God coming into someone's life in conversion, that will reduce me to tears because it, it is such an extraordinary act of love on God's part to bring himself to life in someone else's life and to give us something uh, about which we can witness. And to enter into a story, to return to where we started, that gives us hope. Uh, we were taught from the beginning by Christ that here you will have trouble. The world hated me. If you're my real followers, they will hate you too. But don't be afraid. I am with you through it all. And for the early church, the witness of the thousands of martyrs who died in their deaths, the pagan world was overwhelmed with shock. They could not understand what was going on. They could do their worst, and it did not destroy the faith of the martyrs because Christ was with them, as he promised in that context. How that works, we haven't a clue because we haven't been there. But it, it's foolish not to know what happened. I mean, after the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress, the next most read book in uh, the early part of the Protestant Church in England was Fox's Book of Martyrs, which simply told what happened. The famous two bishops being burned on Oxford High Street, and Latimer saying to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. Uh, I trust today we are lighting a fire in England that will never go out. That's a martyr dying. And Ridley uh, and Latimer died that way, and uh, so did uh, uh, the Cranmer, who wrote the magnificent Book of Common Prayer, uh, who initially tried to back away from it, but he watched uh, the other two bishops, and he recanted what he had done, and Mary had him burnt as well. That's our world. And... Hope is real, not because it's situated here and now, but because it's situated there and forever. We seek a city whose builder and maker is God. And that will withstand any disaster that comes this way. We do not know how it's all going to end. Peter says it will end in 
flame and fire, I don't know. We could do that to ourselves, couldn't we? A couple of nuclear bombs from uh, an Iran going down the tube and uh, the world would be set alight. But we, we are not to be afraid and we are to teach our children not to be afraid. But we can only teach them that from within this story. The, the huge, huge post-COVID hopelessness of the young is terrifying. Uh, I mean, what we do at Augustine College, as, as we started in the late 90s, because children, yeah, I shouldn't call them children now, be mad with me, young people coming to university had no depth to their faith and so it didn't survive. We've been teaching the story of how God has interacted with the world through all the major aspects of intellectual activity for over 25 years, and it works. Now, I, I agree immediately we have selection bias. The young people who are willing to take eight months off and delay their career to come and do this or take a break from their career to come and do it, which would be a good idea at the moment, um, don't regret what they've done, but they're already on the way to truth if they're willing to do that. But if they come and take this course, they've entered a group with, oh, at least a 70% probability that they will survive university with their faith intact. That's not happening to many people. And we we could go. We have, we have no business plan. There's no way you could do it. And we have had, on average, 12 and a half students a year at which level we can just survive. But COVID closed us down for a year, and this coming September at the moment, we've only got four or five. We'll probably run it anyway, but we will need help. Um, um, but we know we'll get it. Uh, the joy of the college for me is the number of times we have looked at the accounts and said, well, we're going to go bankrupt. And then, lo and behold, somebody turns up out of the blue, uh, and gives me a large sum. Uh, the first time it was 25,000, uh, but that got us through it and back on track when we had a low year or two. Um, but we ought to be able to easily fill all that we could take and clone the whole idea throughout North America. We need to split off from the education system. We are beginning to do that. You can see that with the homeschooling movement. I, I think it's got a way to go, but. There are a lot of people saying we need to restart genuine uh, Christian universities again because the arts faculty is totally corrupt and lost. Um, we can do that. We have the people to do it. It's just that they're currently silent or currently unaware. Uh, we need to come to life again. I really have enjoyed over the years traveling all across North America and realizing that wherever I go, people respond to the idea that there are better ways of living that we've neglected, whether it be fathering or sexuality or education or medicine. And now, currently, we're being pushed out of medicine by the liberal elites who want a bureaucratic system which they rule and tell us what we have to do. Uh, that's not the way forward. Uh, and we have the numbers. I mean, we're only 30% of the population uh, or thereabouts, but that's a lot more than the people who rule us who are only, 
what, less than 10% of the population, but they rule. So we can say, look, on grounds of justice and democracy, you ought to allow competition based on the moral commitments of the physicians, because surely patients have a right to a physician who has the same view of the world as they do, who will not do abortion and will not do euthanasia, so you know you won't be killed by accident. It's a different world. Um, I hope I've stirred you up a bit, made you feel a bit guilty, made you think, well, I better look at my charitable giving and see whether it's got some longer-term vision attached to it. Um, those of you who are still listening to me, I thank you. Um, see if you can uh, find other people who want to do the same. I've just changed churches because I want to go to the same church as my brother-in-law in the last period of his life. And it won't be long before there's a reading group happening in that church. Uh, it's already in embryo, and every Sunday a few more people I get to talk to some of them say immediately, and remind me of next week, uh, it's going to happen, isn't it? We have a hunger for it, uh, but it's a hunger we've forgotten about. It's, when it's fed, you say, why didn't I know this before? So God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening, and we will see you next week.